We'll be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 this morning. In my kitchen, the, the way it's kind of situated, our routine of dinner usually flows where we eat. We have a little table in the, the sunroom, kitchen area. Not sunroom, that sounds really technical. It's just a little corner of our kitchen. Uh, but we have a little table there. We eat and get up and take our dishes to the sink. Well, right over the dishwasher is a very important cabinet because in this cabinet dwells a source of strong temptation that was gifted to me by a couple of people in this room. They happen to be sitting over here, and their name starts with Duh and ends with Dakota and Sarah Brown. They gave me one time this big bin to hold M&Ms. And so I, I don't eat M&Ms all the time unless they're available. <laughs> and so ever since Dakota and Sarah got married, I've had M&Ms readily available in my kitchen. And after every meal, I get a handful of M&Ms. That's my routine. And, and even if I say I'm not going to eat any chocolate, I'm training or I'm doing whatever, I want to be healthy, I don't want to eat M&Ms, I think of Dakota and Sarah as I go by that cabinet. And I open the cabinet and I get a handful of M&Ms every evening after supper. It's a convenient, easy temptation. It's this siren call to my taste buds, and I fall to it quite frequently. Now, in my opinion, some may disagree, in my opinion, that eating a handful of M&Ms after every meal really isn't that big of a deal, right? It's something I enjoy. A handful of M&Ms probably aren't going to hurt me every day. But what it does is it serves a little bit of an illustration today, that temptation is real and it's present in our lives. And so today we come to the text in, in Matthew's gospel where he shares with us the account of Jesus' temptation in, in verse 1 through 11 of chapter 4. If you remember last week when Pastor Bill preached from chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, we saw Jesus' baptism. The first time where Jesus comes on the scene publicly, he, his, his ministry, his public ministry begins. And immediately after the, be the beginning of his public ministry, we see him led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. And so we want to look at that text this morning. Follow along with me in God's Word, beginning in chapter 4 of Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, before we read the temptations, let me point out a few things here. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. He's led up by the Spirit. This is a part of God's plan, that Jesus would go into the wilderness. The, the by there shows agency, that it was, it was God who sent him into the wilderness. I believe it's uh, the Gospel of Mark even says that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. This was God's plan for Jesus to go to the wilderness to be tempted. And we see that he goes into the wilderness. An important theme, an important location in the biblical narrative. It's the wilderness that the, the people of God came into their great testing in the Old, Old Testament, a time in which we see them fall over and over again into sin, grumbling and complaining, rebelling, seeking after idolatrous ways. But in Jesus' life, in this moment that we're going to see in just a, in, in just a second, we see Jesus not falling to sin, but, but resisting temptation, standing up to temptation. He resisted. And it's here that we're reminded again that Jesus is the true and better Israel. 
We talked about that when we began Matthew, that, that Matthew is explaining and showing to us that, that Jesus is the true and better of everything. He is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better Joshua. He is the true and better Moses, Abraham, and now Israel. Where Israel stumble, stumbled, Jesus stood. We see them stumble in the wilderness and disobey. Jesus stands in the wilderness and obeys perfectly in every trial of life and we see it here but he's led into the wilderness why what's the purpose the purpose is to be tempted by who by the devil right again there's that word for agency the temptation is by the devil the devil brings the temptation but the the purpose of why he was sent into the wilderness was to be tempted to be tested this word here does not always mean temptation we hear temptation we hear a, a negative word This word is used for testing or for trying. It's not always negative, but because it is so commonly understood in our day as being negative, we just read it and we put it there as temptation. But it's not always negative. Here we see God sending Jesus into the wilderness for a time of testing. Immediately after he steps forward in public ministry, he is led, he is driven into the wilderness to be tested. This is not uncommon for us either. It's not uncommon. You probably have experienced this very thing where you commit your life to the Lord or, or you make a decision to follow something God is leading you to do and you make that decision to, to step forward in obedience and immediately what do you see? You see temptation come upon you. You see testing in your life. It's not abnormal. Honestly, it's probably to be expected. But he's tested by the devil, by Satan, the great adversary of God, the opponent of God, the one who opposed God starting in Genesis 3 continues to oppose God here by twisting his word and doing everything he can to hinder the the plan and the will of the Lord. And I simply want to remind you and point you to the fact that, that we can't ignore the reality of spiritual warfare. We can't ignore the fact that the devil is a true adversary of God. He really does exist. He is not symbolic. He is not a fable. He is real. But in light of that, we also know that he is finite. He is limited in presence. He is limited in knowledge. He is limited in power. Satan is not an equal power to God. Satan is a created being, a rebellious angel, a fallen angel. He is the adversary, but he is not an equal adversary. He is limited, and so we need not, as the people of God, fear him. We need to know his schemes. We need to be aware. We need to know what's going on in spiritual warfare. But in light of that, we serve the mighty, sovereign, holy, awesome, powerful God who reigns supreme and is not intimidated and is not on an equal playing field with Satan. He's limited. He's finite. And we see here, we're going to see as we start to read in just a moment the rest of the the passage, we see that Jesus is indeed the true and better Adam. Because when Satan comes and he tempts Adam in chapter 3 of Genesis, what happens? Adam falls. Adam stumbles. Adam sins. But here we see Jesus as the true and the better Adam that he does not fall, he does not stumble, he does not sin, but he resists the devil. He responds to Satan by declaring the word of God and depending on God's word, relying on God. We see that Jesus is the true and better Adam. 
His stand brought life where Adam's fall brought death. The last thing I would point out to you here in verse 2, and then we'll continue to read into the temptations. But he just makes a statement. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He was hungry. We see the, the humanity of Christ here. We see the, the reality that he went through the same trials and difficulties and pains that we do. But we also should note here that the one who it states was hungry would soon be the one who would satisfy the hunger of all who would look to him. He would be the one who would satisfy the hunger of 5,000 in Matthew 14, 13, 21, and the one who in John 6, 35 looks to the people and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He satisfies our every hunger, but yet he in his humanity here is hungry. And so we read in verse 3, And the tempter, the devil, Satan, the adversary, Diablos, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We see there it concludes what we just noted. It concludes in the same way that that Satan leaves him. Why does he leave him? He leaves him first because Jesus carried out James 4 through 4, 7. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But more importantly, he leaves because in verse 10, Jesus said what? Be gone. Be gone. When the Son of God looks at you and says, be gone, you don't stand around and go, no, I'm going to tempt you some more. No, when the sovereign, almighty, powerful God of the universe, God of all creation looks at you and says, be gone, guess what? You're gone. You leave. Because Satan is not Jesus' equal. The devil left him. So I want us to look at this text, and there's four questions we need to ask of the text this morning. Four questions. Here's the first one. Does God tempt us to evil? Does God tempt us to sin, to to do evil? And, And what we need to understand first about this question is we need to know the difference between tempting and between testing. Testing is done for our good. We we have teachers in the room, right? You test your students to see what they have learned, to see how they're growing, to see even perhaps where they're deficient to help them to grow in those areas. You're testing them because you care about them and you want to see them grow. Testing is done for our good. 
So we can test, or we can trust God's testing, knowing what? A, he is good, and B, he is working in our lives for our good. So the one who tests is doing so for our good and motivation because he is good and, and he's working towards our good. Temptation, on the other hand, is the drawing of one towards evil or towards rebellion or, or towards sin. It's the, the lure that entices you to quench your desires in sin. It's pulling you away. It's pulling you into yourself and into rebellion. It is a lure. God, God will indeed lead us into times of testing. We see that in Scripture, but He does not tempt us to do evil. Think, think about these passages, Deuteronomy 8, 2. We read, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandment or not. Or we read Hebrews eleven seventeen, 17. The commentary about the account of Abraham in Genesis. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son. So in that moment, he was being tested by the Lord. But we see a, a clarification in James 1.13, where James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Do you hear that? God cannot be tempted with evil. Why? Because God is holy in his character. He is holy. He is righteous. He is good. He is true. He cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So there is a difference between testing and tempting. God, in his goodness, tests us to mature our faith, to increase our trust in him, and to teach us more about who he is. He works for our good not for our destruction. Second question we need to ask of this text. What are Satan's schemes? What are his strategies? We see three here. We see three distinct temptations, right, that, that Satan sets before Christ. And, and they, I think they, they are good examples of the strategies, the schemes of Satan that we need to be aware of. The first one is in verse 2 to 3. The first strategy or the first scheme is to, to use a situation of life to tempt you to sin. We read in verse 2, what? That, that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. That makes sense, right? He was hungry. In verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him. In that moment, in that, in that moment of hunger, Satan comes and he says to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. There, fix it satisfy yourself he's not he's not saying listen i don't know if you're the son of god i mean if you're the son of god he's not calling his his divinity into question as much as he's saying listen since you're divine if you're the son of god then go ahead and satisfy yourself go ahead and gratify yourself go ahead and get what you need go ahead and act how you want to act don't worry about the father's purposes don't worry about the father's timing his will his plan you just go ahead and do what you need in this moment you're hungry make some bread the lure what he's appealing to is Jesus' power. He's trying to get him to act on his, apart, on his own apart from trusting in the Father's plan. He's saying, listen, Jesus, just gratify yourself. Go ahead. Indulge yourself. Take the easy way out. You can do it. If you're the Son of God, just go ahead and turn that rock into a piece of bread. You can do that. Go ahead. We, we need to recognize these same temptations in our own lives. 
We need to recognize the temptation that, that where, where Satan would come at us and say, listen, if, if you're capable of this, just go ahead and do it. It's those moments of temptation when, when perhaps we've been waiting so long for something. We've just been waiting and, and we're told to wait and, and we're told that it will come in due time or it's appropriate in due time and we wait and wait and wait and then the temptation is what? Is that really what's best? I mean, you could just go ahead and do it. Do you really need to wait on God's timing? Do you really need to do it the way He said it should be done? Shouldn't you just go ahead and do it? Or, or it's the temptation when we're, we're weakened by pain and sickness. We're weary, we're tired of hurting, we're tired of uncertainty, we're tired of trying to, to just trust the Lord and His timing and His ways, and so we're tempted to find other ways, other sinful ways to cope with the pain, to cope with the stress, to cope with the uncertainty, to make us forget it. Perhaps leaning on abuse of, of substances to cope instead of looking and waiting on the Lord as we sang just a moment ago. Or it's the temptation of times in which we experience the, the fears of life. And, and we're tempted to, to shrink back, to deny the Lord, to flee and run to wherever we define and wherever we decide is a safe place to be. We're tempted in those ways. This, the second strategy we see is in verse 5 to 6. The strategy of twisting the Word of God. Twisting the Word of God. So the first strategy is to, to take a situation in life, a moment in life, and use that difficulty to tempt you to sin. The second strategy is twisting God's Word. We've seen Satan do this from the beginning in Genesis. But here, here Satan says he took, he took Jesus to the holy city, and, and he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he says to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. You, you see in this moment, he is replying to Jesus. What did Jesus say? Verse 4, Jesus says, it is written. And then so Satan comes back and goes, yeah, okay, for it is written. You know, you can almost sense there's probably a little bit of snarkiness in Satan. I don't know, I wasn't there obviously, but you feel like there may have been. It is written. You want to play that game? I can play that game. Now, it's highly interesting that you have Satan. This tells you how intelligent and how wise Satan is, that he's trying to twist the Word of God with the one who is called the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He is the Word, <laughs> and Satan's going, oh, I'm going to twist the Word. This is not smart. There tells you the limit of Satan's intelligence. All right. He tries to twist God's Word. He quotes Psalm 91, 11 to 12. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 91. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Satan says it's written that. Go ahead. Just jump off. God's going to protect you. Psalm, Psalm 91, if you look at Psalm 91, it is written to, to, to uh, encourage the people of God to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. So essentially, Satan's saying, listen, this psalm is written to God's people. He's going to protect you. He wants you to dwell in his shelter, in the shelter of the Almighty. And you're the son of God. I mean, surely it applies to you. Go ahead and jump off. You think he's just going to watch you plummet to the ground and die? Absolutely not. Go for it. Go for it. He's twisting Scripture. Twisting it. He, he, he's tempting Jesus to act as though God the Father is there to serve him rather than Christ being there to serve the Father and glorify him. We see that same thing. We see the same 
pull that, that we, was, we would kind of slip into this idea that, that, hey, God's just here to serve me. So I can do whatever, and as I navigate, God is, is like the, the helicopter parent who's walking around their kid, you know, taking away all the dangers and, and keeping them safe. And, and that's, you just live however you want to live. Do what you want to do. Test God. Jump off. He'll come in because God's here to serve you. That's the temptation. And Jesus responds from Deuteronomy 6. All of Jesus' response are from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. His response here is Deuteronomy 6, 16. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Jesus understood that the goal was not to test God to see how he might serve us. The goal is to trust God and to serve him. That's the goal. But Satan is here simply trying to twist and manipulate Scripture. It's one of his oldest schemes. One of his oldest schemes. In Genesis 3, 1 to 5, what does he do? Did God really say? Are, are you sure? Let me explain to you why God said what he said. It's because he, he, he knows that you'll be like him. Did God really say that? And he puts a seed of doubt. See, Satan practices a faulty hermeneutic, a, a faulty interpretation method. He, he just comes in and he, he's going to interpret it to meet his needs, to make the text say what he wants it to say. He's not interpreting it in context to what it is, the truth of Scripture. He's not doing that. He's just twisting it to meet his needs we live in a day where that is rampant where people just throw out a bible verse and they they make it say whatever they want to say they'll put it on a shirt to make them feel good and it may be completely out of context they may write an entire book about it and it may hit the new york times bestseller list and there may be bookmarks and calendars and devotions and encouraging books and all kinds of stuff and conferences all out of this text has been taken out of context and Satan, all the while, is just going, yeah, <laughs> this is great. This is great. You just keep on running after that. The New York Times bestseller, yeah, that means it's good. No. It can be radically opposed to the truth of God's word and be the New York Times bestseller. And we need to understand, sitting in here today, that we are all susceptible to this. Everyone in here is susceptible to this temptation. It doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian who is just figuring things out, and you're just learning how to read Scripture, and you're just learning how to interpret, and you don't really understand a lot. You're susceptible to that. You need to know and, and to seek to know what does God's Word truly say? What is the truth of Scripture? What does it say about God? Long before, answer those questions, long before you seek to go, well, how does this apply to my life? One of the most dangerous things you can do is just open up Scripture and read and go, okay, how do I apply this to my life without ever considering what it really means? Start with the truth first. But this is also a temptation. It's also something that, that someone in here who's, who's been a believer for years and years and, and perhaps has a theological education and has, has books and reads and studies, it's a, it's a, it's a temptation for us as well. That, that we would come and, and we would start interpreting Scripture, maybe even through some theological framework or, or through some, something that we really love and care about, one aspect of theology, and we start interpreting all of Scripture through this one little aspect of theology and making Scripture fit into that. Listen, Scripture does not fit into my theology. My theology fits into Scripture because Scripture is authoritative. I am not. You are not. We submit to the authority of God's word. So beware 
beware of all. You can find all sorts of great, entertaining preachers that sound good on YouTube, and you can find all kinds of books at the bookstore, but beware of what you read and what you listen to. Make sure it conforms to the truth of God's Word. Don't just be satisfied with, oh, that's in the Bible. No, make sure that, yes, it's in the Bible, but also it is true what is being said out of what is in the Bible. Does that make sense? Okay, I got one nod. Good job. All right. Third temptation. Third temptation that we see in verse 8 is the temptation by directing your heart, your eyes, or your mind away from God. Satan tempts you by directing your heart, your eyes, your mind away from God. Here in verse 8, he he says, um, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. He, He is calling for Jesus' very worship, the Son of God. <laughs> the Son of God. Satan stands, he has the audacity to stand before the Son of God and say, hey, worship me. Worship me. Seriously? Yeah, he's wanting to direct Jesus' attention, his eyes, his gaze away from the Father and towards him. And Jesus responds from Deuteronomy 6.13. He says, it is the Lord your God. You shall fear him, you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Satan comes, and what Satan's doing is he's offering him the kingdoms of the world, saying, listen, you worship me, and I'll give you all of this. You know what's interesting about that? If you read sometime this afternoon, go back and read Psalm 2, verse, um, uh, verses 7 through 8. In, in Psalm 2, 7 through 8, God the Father has already promised that he's giving the Son the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan's temptation is, hey, I'm going to give you the kingdoms of the earth. Look, yeah, I'll just give it all to you, and then you worship me. The Father's already promised that. It's going to happen. But here, Satan's saying, listen, do it in my way and in my timing rather than God's. Are we not tempted in the same way? Is this not something that we see every day? Hey, listen, gain the world. Do this. Focus on yourself. Focus on your financial stability. Focus on your success, on establishing a following, on on being one that everyone acclaims and, and, and who is an influencer. Have your best life now. Make sure you work everything in your life to your best life and your most comfortable life and your most secure life. And, and you can do that and you can even do so in such a way that you can guarantee the same for your offspring. That you leave them this great and mighty inheritance. That all you do is focus on your finances so that you can pass that down. And all the while, you pass down this incredible inheritance, this incredible uh, precedent for success and prosperity, and you leave them nothing of the Lord. Oh, what great joy that brings Satan. May we never be those who pass everything down to our children except for the gospel. Listen, we do face the temptation to live our best life now and to not look ahead to what the Lord has promised. He has already promised that your best life is to come when you're in heaven, in my presence, in glory. There is no sin, no sin, and you're standing in the presence of God Almighty. That is your best life. But the temptation is, no, let's live our best life now. No, wait for the Lord. Trust God the Lord. Serve the Lord now. Worship Him and worship Him alone. Worship Him and worship Him alone. Three schemes of Satan. This brings us to our third question. Our third question, how do we combat Satan's schemes? 
How do we stand against his schemes? Did you, you surely noted Jesus' consistent response. What is it? You can talk. What is it? Scripture. It is written. It is written. Every time in verse 4, verse 7, verse 10, Jesus simply replies, it is written. Pastor Mike read from Psalm 119 in verse 11 where we, we see the, the psalmist write, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, listen, when we hide God's word in our heart, it not only prevents us from rebellious, immoral sins, acts of transgression that we would commonly think about, but it also guards us from mishandling and misapplying the word of God and falling into temptation. We need to hide God's word in our heart. We need to learn to rely on, to know God's word, to trust God's word. Because in Ephesians six seventeen, Paul reminds us that it is the word of God that is our weapon against spiritual warfare. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That is the weapon we go on the offensive with is the word of God. In Psalm 119, 105, we read that the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It is that which lights our way and guides our path. In Psalm 1830, we read, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. It is his word that proves true. It does not prove false. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we read, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That is the word of God. That's what it does in our life. So that means that when you're tempted to disobey God, when Satan comes and says, just disobey, don't obey, then you remind him, it is written in Luke eleven twenty eight. blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. When you're tempted by Satan to fear man and to cower out of what men might think, then you remind him, it is written in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And when you're tempted to look at a bunch of explicit, immoral garbage on the internet, then you're reminded and you remind Satan that it is written in Psalm 119, 37, that I will turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways, O God. When Satan tempts you to plagiarize a paper that you're working on, you're reminded that it is written in Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. And when you're tempted to spread lies about someone, you're reminded and you remind Satan, it is written in Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. When you're tempted to covet the prosperity or the property of the guy next door, you're reminded and you remind Satan, it is written in Luke 12, 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. When you're tempted to follow the teaching, the idea, the philosophy, the lifestyle of something that is contrary to God's word, then you're reminded it is written in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ. And when you're tempted to refuse to forgive someone, when you want to hold on to that bitterness, hold on to that sin, hold on to that grudge and not give forgiveness, then you're reminded it is written in Ephesians 4.32 to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving in, in one another, or forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He forgave you so you are a forgiving person because it is written in the word of God. And when you're tempted to think that you are too bad, too sinful, too far gone for God's grace, you're reminded it is written that in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
So when Satan says, you're not good enough, you're too far gone, you look at him and you say, oh no, that's why God came. That's why Christ came, because I am too far gone. I can't save myself. And Christ came because he is God and he came to save sinners like me. And when you're tempted to think that you're too good, I don't need Christ. I'm religious. I'm good enough. I don't need it. Then you're reminded it is written in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, you need Christ. I need Christ. And praise God. He is great enough that he came and he came to save sinners such as you and me. It is written. Know the word. Rely on the word. Fourth. What difference does it make? What, what difference does it make to read of Jesus' temptation? And this was Jesus. This isn't me. What difference? Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 that we meditated on. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. <laughs> Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Listen, when we read Matthew 4, 1-11, through it is profoundly significant for you and me today because the Son of God was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. He was the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God who we will celebrate at 4 p.m. today at Sacred Winds concert. He is the Lamb who was slain and the Lamb who is worthy because there was no sin or blemish or spot in him. And you know what that means? That, that means that he understands the power of temptation. It means that when we read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4, he understands the fullest power of temptation. Oh, we stumble and fall all too easily, all too quickly. But Christ endured the full power. So he can sympathize with your weakness. He knows Satan's schemes. It, it means that Jesus was tempted and he did not sin. He trusted Scripture perfectly. He obeyed in every instance. He fled through every door that the Father opened. Perfectly. Yes, he was tempted. But we serve the one that did not succumb to temptation. And because of that, it means we can draw near to the throne of grace and confidence. In confidence. Because we're not worshiping some God who fell like we fall. We're not worshiping and, and trying to learn from one who says, listen, I, don't, don't look at my personal life because we don't want to go there. Let me tell you about the life. No, no, Jesus says, I am the life. I am the truth. I am the way. We come to the one who is sinless. We come to the one who is a worthy sacrifice and is now exalted and enthroned. And so we come boldly before him. Why? because he was sinless, we come boldly before him to find mercy and grace and help in our time of need. We come before him to find mercy on our weakness, grace, 
in our failings, in help, in our need. The only reason we can do this is because of Matthew 4, 1 through 11. That, that Christ fled from temptation. That Christ resisted temptation. That Christ did not sin. We sin. Every one of us. But Christ did not. And it's because he did not that he saves. Because he is a perfect and a holy and a sufficient sacrifice. The Lamb of God. Listen, the reason we draw near to Christ today is Jesus' sacrifice. Did, did you catch, I, I pulled it up on my phone, did you catch Christ's sure and steady anchor? While the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won. Deeper still, then, goes the anchor. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ is that anchor. Christ is the anchor. When temptation comes, are you anchored in Christ? As I know, there, there are some of you in here today and some of you perhaps listening online, you're not anchored in Christ. You're not. You're, you're playing religious games. You're trying to, to do the religious thing. You're not anchored in Christ. And Satan's just having a heyday in your life. And your own flesh, your own heart is just pursuing sinfulness, bound in sin. And I would call you to repent and to turn to Christ in faith. He is the sure and steady anchor. He is the one who is perfect and holy without blemish, who obeyed perfectly and resisted temptation. Look to him in faith today. Our, our deacons are going to come down and prepare the Lord's Supper. We're going to finish our time today observing the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, I want you to remember, to know, that we do so because of the work of Christ. That the Lord's Supper is a time where we remember His sacrifice on the cross. We remember that the one who was sinless, we're told in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. The sinless Son of God died in our place on the cross and rose from the grave triumphantly over death that we might be reconciled to the Father. And so we remember that in this moment. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, if you're here visiting, I would invite you to join with us if you're a, a follower of Jesus Christ. This is not our table, the Grace Baptist table, it's the Lord's table. And so we invite you to take part if you're in here and you're not a believer, I would ask you to allow the elements to, to pass by. These elements do not save you. If you're here and an unbeliever and looking for salvation, that comes through turning from your sin and turning to Jesus Christ alone in faith. Let's pray together as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. God, we come to you, O oh God, and give you praise. We give you praise, Lord Jesus, for living a holy, perfect, sinless life, something we are unable to do. God, we praise you, the sinless one, 
for dying on the cross for our sins in our place. And we worship You because You are the risen Son of God. The One who has absolute authority over all things. We worship You. And so God, we take this moment to remember Your body and Your blood broken and poured out for us. God, we take this time now to examine our own lives. Lord Jesus, we worship you through this time. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.